This is the Week in Addiction Medicine, a podcast resource of timely news and top stories brought to you by the American Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM. Today's Tuesday, August 9th, and I'm Claire Rasmussen. Our lead story this week, Impact of COVID-19 Telehealth Policy Changes on Buprenorphine Treatment for Opioid Use Disorder, is in the American Journal of Psychiatry. This national retrospective cohort study examined the impact of policy changes in March 2020 on buprenorphine treatment for opioid use disorder in the Veterans Health Administration over the subsequent two years. The study examined trends in the use of telephone, video, and in-person treatments, and found that after the COVID-19 policy changes, the number of patients receiving buprenorphine continued to increase, but the delivery of care shifted to telehealth visits, suggesting that any reversal of COVID-19 policies must be carefully considered. Next is a study in Nature, titled Dual Action of Ketamine Confines Addiction Liability. In this study, the authors used latest-generation fluorescent markers and activity indicators to investigate whether ketamine increases mesolimbic dopamine, The study found that ketamine did not induce the synaptic plasticity typically observed with addictive drugs in mice, but it did elicit robust dopamine transients in the nucleus accumbens. As a result, the dual action of ketamine leads to a unique constellation of dopamine-driven positive reinforcement with low addiction liability. A new article in the Journal of Psychiatric Research is titled, Potential Brain Recovery of Frontal Circuits in Heroin Users After Prolonged Abstinence. This study investigated the recovery of two brain tracts in relation to abstinence from opioids, the circuits being the frontal cortex to nucleus accumbens and frontal cortex to caudate. At baseline, brain activity was reduced in both tracts compared to controls. Following eight months of abstinence, brain activities in both tracts improved but was still less than controls. The improvements were associated with decreases in craving and increases in cognitive function. Our next article is in the American Journal of Psychiatry, titled Trends in Cannabis Use Disorder Diagnosis in the U.S. Veterans Health Administration. This study used electronic health records to identify the percentage of VHA patients seen each year with a cannabis use disorder diagnosis. The study found that diagnoses of cannabis use disorder more than doubled during the period of 2005 to 2019. Possible explanations include a decreasing perception of risk, changing laws, increasing cannabis potency, stressors related to growing socioeconomic inequality, and the use of cannabis to self-treat pain. Next, we have an article in the Journal of Addiction Medicine titled Three-Year Retention Rates with Office-Based Treatment of Buprenorphine for opioid use disorder in a private family medicine practice. This retrospective chart review of patients treated with buprenorphine found that retention rates in a private family practice in New York were 67% at one year, 54% at two years, and 47% at three years. A history of intravenous drug use was associated with a higher dropout rate at one year. However, retention rates were not affected by buprenorphine dose or cocaine, heroin, and cannabis use, or finally, alcohol dependency. The authors speculate that the improved retention and treatment was the result of an integration of primary care with medications for opioid use disorder. 
A new study in the New England Journal of Medicine is titled Tobacco Addiction. In this clinical practice paper, the authors present a clinical vignette of a patient with tobacco use disorder and related complications. The authors review current guidelines and recommendations for issues such as screening, advising to quit, offers of counseling, and medication use. The authors note some critical gaps in evidence, including the use of medications among adolescents, non-daily smokers, pregnant women, and persons who use smokeless tobacco or e-cigarettes. Next is an article in Annals of Medicine, titled Addressing Adolescent Substance Use with a Public Health Prevention Framework. The authors explore harm reduction approaches for clinicians working with adolescents, emphasizing the importance of providing clear advice about the potential harm of substance use while keeping lines of communication open. Principles of harm reduction, which include compassion, understanding, and non-coercion, can also be applied. Our final article, the Rural Opioid Initiative Consortium Description, is an addiction science and clinical practice. In this study, the Rural Opioid Initiative, established by NIDA, collected epidemiological and policy data, with plans to include interventions in an ongoing phase two. In the first phase, 86% of participants reported opioids as primary substance of use in the prior 30 days, while 74% reported methamphetamines as primary substance of use, while 53% of participants reported having at some point received a naloxone kit. 49% reported personal overdose, with a median of three occurrences, and only 48% reported receiving medication for opioid use disorder. This concludes today's episode of This Week in Addiction Medicine. Remember to subscribe to the ASAM Weekly for more exclusive content and our editor's commentary, delivered every Tuesday. Be sure to check us out on social media and asam.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.